You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For December 13th, 2017, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. While it is well understood that solar is a variable resource that only produces when the sun is up, it's less well understood what the best way is to deal with that. Armchair analysts frequently use a simple back-of-the-envelope approach and just take the output of a solar plant, multiply it by however many hours the plant isn't producing, and then assert that a separate storage system to supply that amount of power would be needed in order to make the solar plant look like a thermal plant that runs round the clock. Worse, some will proceed to then insist that the cost of such a storage system would have to be added to the cost of a solar plant before comparing solar to another power generator. But that's not how the grid works. As I have explained before on this show, system reliability is a system attribute, not a generator attribute. No generator produces all the time. Even so-called baseload generators like coal and nuclear plants don't. On average, U.S. nuclear plants have historical capacity factors in the range of 92% or less, and coal plants in recent years have had capacity factors in the range of 60% or less. And just for completeness, the capacity factors of wind plants are typically around 34%, and solar PV systems around 26%. But we don't lard up the costs of coal or nuclear plants with storage systems in order to make them look like 24 by 7 by 365 resources. We add other resources until the system as a whole is balanced. And that's the way that we should look at variable resources like solar and wind as well. Historically, solar plants equipped with storage were thermal concentrating solar plants, aka CSP, which generated steam to turn a turbine and store excess energy as heat. Those fell into disfavor a few years ago as solar PV systems became considerably cheaper and ran away with the market. Now we're beginning to see solar PV systems paired with storage systems based on lithium-ion batteries. But even now, we're not building them to make solar resources look like full-time generators. Even when coupled, the solar and storage systems really operate in different markets and provide different services to the grid in complex interactions based on lots of interesting details, as we'll hear in this episode. Now, as we increasingly rely on a renewably-powered grid, we may indeed find that we need more storage. But how much? And what kind? And when will we need it? Will we need large amounts of seasonal storage, as some analysts have suggested? Or will other technologies reduce the amount of storage we'll need? And how well can we even forecast that need years or even decades in advance? To help us understand these questions, our guest today is Paul Denholm, a principal energy analyst with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden, Colorado. He has investigated grid applications for energy storage and solar energy for 15 years and is a leading expert on the technical, economic, and environmental benefits and impacts of the large-scale deployment of renewable electricity generation. In a series of recent papers, he has explored the subject of coupled solar and storage systems, and it's a real treat to have him on the show. 
Then in the news segment, we'll note the irony of Chris Crane's recent comments on storage, look at the continuing collapse of merchant generation as wind and solar drive down wholesale power prices, hear some more good news about the death of coal in India, and consider the implications of the beat provisions in the Senate's tax cut bill. But first, our conversation with Paul Denholm. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Paul, to the Energy Transition Show. Good evening. I think we all understand that adding storage to a solar plant can compensate for the variability of the solar plant's output. But what's the primary financial case for systems with integrated solar and storage? I mean, is it mainly just that it allows a plant to run close to full time instead of only when the sun is out? Or is it that the storage system smooths out fluctuations in the output of the solar array? Or is it that the storage component allows the system to participate in additional markets by offering, for example, grid regulation services? Or is it sort of all of the above? It's a little bit of all of the above, but quite frankly, the primary driver right now is tax credits. So right really? now- Right now, photovoltaics are eligible for the 30% investment tax credit, which basically roughly takes about 30% of the price off of the top of the cost of the PV system. Right. Storage is not eligible for the investment tax credit unless it's actually physically coupled to the PV system and gets most of its energy from photovoltaics. So under those configurations, the storage is considered part of the PV plant and then becomes eligible for that 30% investment tax credit. Wow. I didn't even realize that. So, okay. That's super interesting. Yeah. That really gets into one of the things that's interesting about when you start getting into the energy analysis field is the realization that it's not just physics and electrical engineering. For better or for worse, if you really want to get into the details, you have to start learning things about tax law and financing and things like that. So that can be, sometimes it can be a pain, but it's critically important to understand all of the financial underpinnings of how our industry works. Well, we've certainly had a couple of lawyers on this show, but I haven't had any tax experts on this show yet, so maybe that's something we need to do. Sure. Yeah. Well, okay, so what if we took that out? I mean, that's really good to know. What if we took that element out? What if there were no more ITC? Then, to restate my question, where would the major value be in having a combined solar and storage system? Sure. So the major value would actually be the reduction in costs. So It turns out that batteries have a bunch of power electronics in them and controls in them, and those systems, those power electronics, those controls are actually quite similar to the controls and power electronics that you need in a photovoltaic plant. So it turns out that what you can do is you can engineer the systems so they share a lot of the common components. In an ideal world, you really wouldn't combine photovoltaics and storage. You'd put storage exactly where it's needed and photovoltaics in the best site. So you probably actually would never combine them in most cases. But it turns out that the advantage of reducing the costs means there's some synergies there that can be combined, and that can reduce the cost of the combined system. The services that you described kind of at the beginning of your question about whether or not storage can provide all these additional benefits by helping smoothing out the photovoltaics and providing additional services, that's all true, but it actually doesn't need to be coupled to the PV. So you can put a battery in a downtown region, have your photovoltaics in a remote region, and the battery can still act to mitigate all the fluctuations and provide additional services, they don't have to be physically co-located or coupled in any manner. Well, okay, that's fair. Although the more separated they are on the grid, the harder it is for that to happen. I mean, then the solar system becomes essentially a very distinct resource from the storage component, right? It does, but with modern controls and communications, there actually really isn't any reason why a photovoltaic plant located 
dozens or even hundreds of miles away from a battery, you know, they can talk to each other so that when there's a reduction in output from the PV, it's really the system operator who's monitoring not just that one photovoltaics plant, but all of the PV plants in the entire system and is responding to the aggregated output from all of the PV plants, all the wind, and all the demand. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So going back to your earlier point about how you really get some cost savings from coupling the two systems together. I mean, just looking at the capital cost aspect of the combined system, it seems that the main way that it reduces the cost over the two separate systems is that it lets you use one less inverter, and inverters are expensive. Is that true? I mean, that that's the main cost savings? Yeah, it is the reduction in the inverter, but there's a bunch of other stuff. I mean, one of the things that's so interesting about the decline in photovoltaics costs that have happened over the last decade is, for a long time, people were fixated on the panels themselves, the PV modules. Well, it turns out that the cost of the PV modules have come down so much that they're now less than half of the total cost. And the costs have come down so much, we're now kind of scraping away pennies from the system. And it all adds up, but you have to look at each and every little component. So it's not just the inverter, it's the shared siting and permitting. So instead of of getting a permit for two different installations, now you only have to get a permit for one. The cost of going to utility and signing up for an interconnection agreement. Now you've just got one interconnection connection agreement. Each individual are only a small fraction of the system, but they do add up. So it's not just the inverter, it's all the other balance of system and soft costs and all the other little factors that add up. Well, that's interesting. So uh, about, oh, geez, more than a decade ago when I was actually designing and selling solar systems, as I recall, and it was mainly, you know, residential, small commercial, that kind of thing. As I recall, the inverter was typically around 15% of the total installed system cost at that point. What is it now? It's probably about 10%. And it's just like photovoltaics have come down in price, inverters have come down in price too. They're now pretty much completely commoditized. And it's probably unlikely that the inverters will come down too much more in cost. Interesting. So correct me if I'm wrong, but when you're combining a solar and a storage system now, especially like a utility size one, I think, the inverter is typically sized for the solar array only rather than the combined output of the two. Right. Why is that? Since it would mean the total output of the two systems would be reduced from what they could produce together. That's right. And that's kind of the geeky key details of our study that we just recently published. And you're really kind of getting in the weeds, but it is kind of important to understand. Hey, look, I read that study, or at least part of it, and getting in the weeds is exactly what we do on this show. So <laughs> <Sure>. go for it. <laughs> okay. Well, basically, yeah, when you're sharing the inverter, it means that when the PV is producing its full output, you can't actually use the storage at its full output. And when we started the study, the kind of the hypothesis going in was, gosh, this is going to really reduce the value of the system because we've got, you know, Again, the PV is producing at full output and we can't use the storage. And during periods of peak demand, it'd be great if we could produce both PV output and storage output. And now we can't do that. Well, it turns out that the peak demand for electricity is around 5 to 7 p.m. on a hot summer afternoon. That's when the prices get really high. Well, the sun is still shining during those hot summer afternoons at 6 to 7 p.m., but not that much. Right now, we say that the reliable capacity credit or the fraction of the PV plant that can really contribute to producing reliable electricity is about 50%. So that basically says that in a place like California, if you build a 100 megawatt PV plant, the local utility would really only count 50% of that or 50 megawatts towards its resource adequacy contribution or you know how much it could rely on the PV during those peak summer afternoons. And that leaves headroom 
room for the storage plant. Now here's where it gets really fun and tricky. One of the interesting challenges of deploying increased amounts of photovoltaics is that PV right now contributes to that peak generation, but give it another few more years as more people put PV onto their rooftops and more utilities install PV, PV will effectively shift the peak demand for electricity. PV will satisfy that demand at 4 p.m. or so, but now the peak demand for electricity will now be 7 or 8 or even 9 p.m. in the evening when PV is no longer producing large amounts of output. Mm -hmm. So when we look at a combined PV storage system in not-too-distant future, the PV will produce in the 11 a.m., noon to 4 or 5 p.m., and then the storage system will take over and produce peak output during 6, 7, 8, 9 p.m. So that's where there really is a nice synergy. PV produces during the middle of the day, the storage will produce in the evening, and it will no longer be a burden to share these components. How interesting. So combining this basically changes the supply peak on the solar side. And that's actually reminding me of kind of the opposite dynamic, which is that as we get into more and more deep electrification through, you know, heating and so on, that we might actually be flipping certain grids from like summer peaking to winter peaking. And so everything that we knew before is now changing. And it's also making me think about the fact that 10 years ago, the time of use rate in California, for example, always had the highest priced hours of the day between like noon and two. And now that's the off-peak price because we have so much solar during that time, we actually have prices going negative. I mean, wow, everything's changing under our feet. That's right. And that dynamic is one of the key elements of integrating large amounts of wind and solar into the power system, exactly what you just described. We're going to need to incentivize people to use electricity when it's most available and cheapest. And it used to be that we had these kind of simple ideas of on and off peak. And those simple ideas are no longer going to be the case as we put more renewables onto the grid. Yeah, and I love the fact that San Diego Gas and Electric's experimental new tariff, the GIR for electric vehicles, is going to be posting a day ahead hourly varying wholesale prices. I guess it would be retail prices for Mm -hmm. electricity. So that's really interesting. Then you're getting out of this kind of rough banded approach to time of use and you're actually getting into a very dynamic approach to that. That's right. Do you think something like that would happen, uh, would become relevant in storage as well? Yes, I think so. You know, storage is really just one of the pieces of the puzzle we're going to need to integrate large amounts of renewables. As we look at kind of decarbonizing the electric sector with renewables, a lot of things are going to change, including how we incentivize consumer behavior and how system operators and individuals will interact with the power system. One of the real key challenges is going to be making sure that people with behind the meter storage, if you've got a Tesla power wall, or if you've got an electric vehicle, or if you've got distribution-sided storage, we need to make sure that we incentivize the proper behavior. And I don't mean you know, hard-handed regulation here. I mean, this will all be done through the markets, but basically making sure that the way that you buy and sell electricity to your grid is appropriately incentivized with the proper price signals. So when electricity is cheap or even free, the utility will send you signals. You can charge electricity. You can charge that vehicle at very low cost. And then when the prices are very high, you can discharge from your storage system or make sure that your vehicle stops charging. Right, right. So at what point might we expect solar plants with storage to become competitive with, for example, natural gas-fired peaker plant? How competitive are they now, or how far does the cost of a combined solar and storage system need to fall still to become competitive with gas peakers? 
Yeah, so this is another thing that's been really interesting to watch over the last 10 years. I've been working on storage and solar for the better part of 15 years now, and we saw solar prices come down quite rapidly over the last decade, and storage plant prices have only in the last few years started to kind of follow that trajectory. Yeah. When you look at the projections for storage, and there's a lot of uncertainty about how cheap storage really is, just because a lot of the pieces of storage aren't completely commoditized. And what I mean by that is, you know, Storage right now, utility scale storage, hasn't reached the point where you can really get a turnkey storage installation. All the individual pieces still kind of have to be cobbled together a little bit. You've got the battery, you've got the charge controller, you've got the air conditioning and HVAC system, all the software. That's coming together, but you still kind of have to put those pieces together. And whenever you have to kind of you know make your own system, that adds costs. And so over the next couple of years, what we're going to see is we're going to continue seeing the cost of the batteries themselves come down, but we're also going to see more developers and integrators offering a complete and total package. When we look at the cost projections from a variety of vendors, my best guess, you know, my kind of personal belief is that right around the time of 2020, I really think that storage will become cost competitive with new peaking resources. Wow. We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free and always will be, so if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and join. Annual subscriptions are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions and per-episode purchases are also available. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. And let me offer a special welcome to the students and educators out there who have joined our new subscribers. A half dozen university classes are now using the show as coursework, with more joining all the time, so welcome. And if you're a student or an educator who would like to inquire about our unbeatable educational discount, just shoot me an email at chris at energytransitionshow.com and we'll work something out for you. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisanal podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. Chris Crane, the CEO of Exelon, the largest owner of nuclear power plants in the U.S., called energy storage the most promising technology of the future. However, he also asserted that storage can't yet replace nuclear plants because storage systems typically discharge power over a few hours and not days. Well, we know from our conversation with Paul in this episode that that is not strictly a true statement or even necessarily a relevant statement. And for the record, there are plenty of technologies that can discharge power for days at a time. But it's remarkable that Crane would even make such a statement, and in a deliciously ironic twist, that he would do so at the University of Chicago at the commemoration of the first man-made nuclear reaction 75 years ago, and that he would say that in contrast to the keynote delivered by former Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz, which asserted that the U.S. must continue to pursue nuclear energy. Strange days indeed. And speaking of Exelon... 
Item 2. Exelon put its Texas subsidiary under bankruptcy protection in November, saying that historically low power prices within Texas have created challenging market conditions for all power generators. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.